The following program is recorded content created by The Truth Network. Phone lines are open. We are live. You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Thank you for joining us today on The Line of Fire. You've got questions. We've got answers. Any question of any kind that relates in any way to anything we talk about on the air, anything I write about, anything that relates in any way to our ministry, as long as it's appropriate for a Christian radio, give us a call, 866-348-7884. For everyone watching on YouTube, greetings to you. Click the thumbs up button right now to help spread this video to others on YouTube and send us a note where you're watching from on Facebook. Click on share to get this on your page as well to share it with others so they can watch along. All right. Are you being informed, equipped, taking advantage of everything we have for you? Do you know about our latest resources, latest articles, latest videos? I'm about to record a video called The Truth About Jonathan and David. You want to be sure not to miss those? Go to my website, ask Dr. Brown, askdrbrown.org. Sign up for our emails today. You'll also be informed within the next oh, a little over a week about our new trip planned for Israel next May, May of 2023. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go straight to the phone, starting with Sean in League City, Texas. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, how are you today? Doing very well, thank you. Good, good. Um, I have uh, two questions. The first one uh, is relating to Second Corinthians chapter three, verse eighteen, mm-hmm. and it talks about uh, in the NET. It says, "And we all, with unveiled face, uh, faces, reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord, who is uh, who is the Spirit." And my question is: Is I've always heard it like this means from one level to another level, but in in uh, context, it seems like it was making a contrast between the Old Testament and the new and the new covenant that we're in. Um, is that is that more? Would you, you say that's no? It's it's not, Sean. It's way? no. It's not either or. In other words, it's building on that concept that there was a glory mm-hmm. under the old covenant or the or under the Sinai covenant that was reflected in Moses' face, glowing when he came from the presence of the Lord. But it was the glory that faded. Now there is a new and greater glory under the new covenant, but in that regard, as we grow in grace, as we reflect the image of the Lord more and more, as we become more like him, we go from one level of glory to another. So there's no reason to say it just means from the Sinai covenant to the new covenant. It can also talk about growth in, in the Lord and in the, the body manifesting the glory of the Lord in a growing way in the new covenant. So I look at it as both and actually. Oh, okay. And my second question is, um, in regards to when people talk about hearing or I'm trying to hear the voice of the Lord, I'm charismatic. I'm not opposed mm-hmm. to any of this. So I'm not coming at it from that angle. But I, uh, I listen to Greg Kokel quite often, and uh, and he has a perspective that I find it challenging. But he's it seems that he's right in this, in that, uh, that we don't actually have to try to hear God's voice, because if God actually speaks, um, you're going to hear it. Now, I think a lot of times we're conflating 
um, God speaking with God moving. Like he's at active, he's actively working in my life, and I can see it. But a lot of times I say, "Oh, that God's speaking to me when He's really moving in my life." And yeah, well, if God speaks, well, I'm, and just one point, I'm not, and then and I'll shut up. Because um, like in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, there was nobody saying, oh, "I can't quite hear what God's saying." They all heard Him. Well, first, first uh, with all respect to, to Greg Kokel, who's a great uh, apologist and teacher. In fact, your friend just moments ago sent me one of his articles on a controversial verse in Exodus. He did a great, great job opening up the Hebrew there. So all respect to him. Uh, here's where I would differ. There is learning to hear the voice of the Lord, just like learning to grow in many different areas in the Lord. In Acts 16, Paul and the team, they want to go one direction. Feel it's the right thing to do. And the Spirit of the Lord says, no. Okay, we'll go in this direction. No. And then they have it pause a dream and then shares the dream. And then they conclude what God is saying based on that. Uh, there are plenty of times in the Old Testament where God said, I spoke and spoke and spoke and you didn't hear. Right? No, so, obedience. The obedience, I, I'm not content. Whether or not someone obeyed or, is besides the point. But I... I think that if he speaks, how does it that we it doesn't talk about learning to hear the voice of God necessarily in the in the scriptures? We may see that, but it doesn't direct us to do right. That. But but we grow. Why is it that we grow in a thousand other ways in our relationship with God? That we grow in our understanding of the written word, but we can't mm-hmm. grow in recognizing the voice of the Lord. Samuel, right? It's in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Samuel, yeah. when God speaks to him the first time, he thinks it's Eli. He gets it wrong. Right, but he heard it. But he heard it. <laughs> okay. So you may not hear. The, the Lord speaks in John 12, and some people think it's thunder, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. so people may not realize. Yeah, it, it, Sean, and I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to help. So pl- please hear me here, all right, in this regard. No one says that when God speaks, everybody necessarily hears it. God spoke to Paul. Right, and some heard it, and some didn't hear it. So he can speak in a way that it, it takes a while. So you may not recognize that was the voice of the Lord. You might have just thought it was your own mind. You, and then it's like Eli thought it was someone else's voice. You might hear something, but think it's your own mind. Right? We grow, Hebrews 5, we're supposed to grow in our discernment of good and evil. Right? Our powers of discernment are trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The same way we learn to grow in hearing the voice of the Lord. So maybe we hear it, but we think it's our own mind. Or we hear it and, and we think it's someone calling us. Or we hear it and, and mistake what we're hearing. And even when we read, we can read words on a page and we don't really hear it. We don't really see it. It's there written in front of us, but we're not getting it. So it's the same thing with the Lord. Here with Elijah in, in 1 Kings 18 and, and then going to the 19th chapter when he's on Mount Horeb. So what happens there? There's, there's the earthquake, there's the fire, but the Lord's not in it. And then the sound of a still, small voice. The Hebrew is very interesting, kind of like a sliver of a voice. That's suggesting it was, you had to be listening to hear it. So I, I, with all respect, I, I differ. And I would see many scriptural principles that would point to the fact that we learn to understand when God's speaking. We learn to, to better discern between the voice of the Lord and the voice of our own mind and the voice of others. And it, it comes out of our relationship with the Lord. 
So I, I would see scriptural principles, and then it works out practically like that as well. So chew on it, all right? Uh, give it some thought. Thank you, Sean, for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Anil in Illinois. Welcome to the line of fire. Yes. Um, I was reading um, 1 Corinthians 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the first verse, this is about women covering the head. And uh, I was reading in the first verse, he says, Paul says that he took, he passed on the traditions and he's happy that they are observing it. You know, the Corinthian church. Yes, sir. So I was wondering, are these, is he referring to Jewish traditions? Because uh, when we watch videos of uh, the Jews at the Wailing Wall, the men cover the, the heads. So I was wondering, what is he referring to? And I was, uh, and I just realized this morning, even Hindu women in India, when they go to their temples, they cover their heads with the end of their saris mm-hmm. that they usually drape their shoulders with. They cover their heads. But, uh, you know, I wanted to know, and this also I was trying to, I was like wrestling with this topic because, you know, are we supposed to follow this? I know many churches, American churches that want to get out of it. They say, oh, it's just cultural. He was talking to uh, at that time and place. But like, you know, when I grew up in India, in uh, the Plymouth Brethren Church, they used to, uh, the women used to cover their heads. And uh, my wife, when we got married, she was raised in West Africa and she was charismatic. She really hated churches like that. So in America, I would have loved to, to I would have liked to join churches like the Brethren Church because they uh, follow 1 Corinthians 14 where uh, worship is participatory and yeah. not just the, the pastor, senior pastor and the worship team. Uh, you know, doing the doing church. You know, yeah. I know the rest of us sitting quiet. But what I wanted to understand, so I had two questions. You know, is this um, is Paul? What tradition is is Paul referring to? The Jewish tradition that uh, you know women men should right. not do not cover their heads while praying, or some other tradition. And why do the Jewish men cover their heads now? And okay. then the second most important relevant question to me was like. Are women supposed to cover their heads in church today and not just using the American uh, excuse of it's just cultural? All right, all, all clear. Okay, so so first, and thanks for the question, and in my many trips to India, yes, when the women, they, they can be sitting in the service listening to the preaching, teaching, but when they go to pray or if they come up to speak, they will, they will wrap, wrap the sari over their head. Okay, uh, he's not talking about passing on Jewish tradition to them. Nor was he telling them that this is uh, what the culture does because they knew that. In other words, in the culture of the day, a married woman would not leave the home without her head being covered. So her hair was seen as her glory, but also she would not leave the home without her, her head being covered, you know, veiled or covered, you know, the equivalent of like a woman draping her sari over her, over her head, something like that, right? So uh, that, that was the norm in the day. The question was, when you have a meeting in your home, now the woman in the home does not need, the married woman in the home does not need to veil her head, cover her head. But if you're having a house meeting, now bring the public into your home, should it be done? And Paul's teaching was yes, and it's a sign of, of, of authority. It's a sign of the woman's submission to the husband and the things being in proper order in the meeting. And therefore, it should be done. So, And, and then if the woman is going to pray or prophesy, then she should have her head covered. All right? So how does that apply to today? Well, that is not the custom of our culture, all right? So what we want to do is have our families in proper order before God and maintain certain levels of gender distinction 
before God. In other words, recognizing that there's a difference between male and female. We want to have those things in order. But the covering the head is not our culture. It's not our culture, our custom. It's unknown to us that a married woman cannot go out of the, the home without her head covered. So to now just do that in a church service, some do it before the Lord. Hey, that's fine. But I absolutely do not see it as biblically necessary. Why is it that in Judaism men do? This is a sign of reverence, just a reminder that there's a God in heaven above them. So it's a sign of reverence for God above and that's why a Jewish man during every waking hour will have his head covered unless he's taking a shower or something like that. Hey, thank you, sir, for the call and blessings on your life and marriage and work in the church. 866-348-7884. we got one phone line open. Talk to you in a moment on the other side of the break. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Remember to visit vitaminmission.com, Dr. Stengler's health supplements, vitamin supplements, supplements for a wide range of medical issues, conditions will really help. They will really help supplement a healthy lifestyle or target certain areas of concern. I've used the supplements for years along with living and eating super healthily, and it's, it's been a great benefit. And remember, Dr. Stengler is helping you hear this broadcast around the world. Yep, that's right. Everyone that goes to the website, vitaminmission.com, you get a discount from Dr. Stengler. Then he turns around and makes a donation to our ministry to help us reach more folks. Hey, again, let, let's just try something on YouTube once more. Curious to see what happens if every one of you just take a second and click on the thumbs up button. Everyone watching live on YouTube, click on that together right now. We just want to see how it boosts it out to other folks on YouTube so we can reach more and more people. 866-348-7884. That reminds me, Monday, God willing, if you're listening on radio, you'll be hearing one of our best of broadcasts. So if you're tuning in on July 4th, great. For everyone that's going to tune in on YouTube and Facebook, we're going to do a commercial-free broadcast, right? So we won't be uh, streaming on radio then. We'll just be streaming online. So we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to take questions and all kinds of things. So it's a great time to tune in for a commercial-free hour here on the Line of Fire. All right, let us go to uh, John in Tucson, Arizona. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Uh, first, thank you very much for everything that you do. Uh, I've been blessed uh, listening to your, your show. Thank you. Um, well, my sorry, I got, I got a little bit of feedback. Uh, my question is about, I've been a Christian for probably 30 years, mm -hmm. and I used to listen to Dr. Walter Martin a lot. So um, when I did that, I was still listening to when they transferred over to a different Bible answer man. I won't mention his name. But um, I still got into some of uh, the material that uh, the Christian Research Institute was putting out. Mm -hmm. So I listened to, um, recently I listened to the uh, several books. I don't want to plug his books. I really don't. Um, but one of them had to do with the end times. Mm -hmm. One of them had to do with the with afterlife. And 
my biggest thing, my, my main question is about the second coming of Christ, and I'll, I'll hang up mm-hmm. after this. Um, when I read Matthew 24, and I believe it's Mark 13 and Luke 21, I see, and what this author does is they try to make it sound like almost the entire thing took place in AD 70. Mm-hmm. But I have a difficult time reading that passage and saying this completely happened in AD 70. I know he's not a full preterist, and I know that uh, some people are partial preterists, but even reading that, I understand that it had to do with the temple, but I don't see the even the partial preterism in there because there's a clear clear line or clear uh, jump from the verses to where he talks about the harvesting of souls. And again, thank you very much for your ministry. Yeah. Hey, John, thank you uh, for the call uh, as you hang up and listen. 866-34-TRUTH. So the name you didn't mention was Hank Hanegraaff. Hank and I, in in the earlier days of the Browns revival, had some uh, difficult interaction, but then we became friends during it and have been colleagues ever since. We only had dinner once since he's been in the Charlotte area many years, but some of my friends see him. We'll run into each other at conferences. So, uh, and even as as Hank has become Eastern Orthodox, I, I still love and, and respect him, and pray for God's grace to be with him as he continues on his spiritual journey. Uh, but yeah, when when I met with Hank years back, he gave me his his end time book with a smile, like you're not going to like this one. So, and I recently did a an online debate with Dr. Gary Demar who's a very strong partial preterist. I mean, really, in many ways, goes beyond what many other partial preterists do by taking verse after verse in the New Testament that we've all understood about the future second coming, and they'll say, no, no, that that already happened in 70 AD. So aside from a massive exaggeration in terms of the whole church world of the impact of the destruction of the temple in the year 70, you absolutely have verses in Matthew 24 that cannot apply to the destruction of the temple and what happened before it. You know, Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I mean, how else could you say it? The whole world to all nations. Now, Paul will talk about the gospel going to all nations, meaning all the nations that they knew and, and, and could be reached at that time, But Paul certainly knew there was much to be done still with the Great Commission. And when he says in Colossians 1 that the gospel has been preached to every creature under heaven, he means reverence gone has been preached to everybody. He he did not imagine that the mission was done, that everyone on the entire planet had heard the gospel. No, his other writings, he's talking about longing to go here and here and bring the message, etc. So again, when you have these phrases, the whole world, all nations, no, that has not yet happened. And then, then as you go down, uh, even where it says that the, the, the tribulation that will happen will be great and nothing will ever be greater than that, and yet you have clear passages about the end of the world and a destruction the likes of which we've never seen. But then if you pass by that, all right, uh, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Well, no, the whole world did not see that as, as happens with lightning where everyone can see it where they are. No, that, that didn't happen. And then, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. You say, well, that's apocalyptic imagery from the Old Testament. Yeah, c- could be. But some of it does speak about the end of the age as well. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn 
and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect together from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That didn't happen. You've got you to reinterpret all those words in the most stretched forms imaginable to say that that already happened. With all respect to, to preterist, partial preterist scholars, I, I obviously categorically differ with that reading. And interestingly, in the early church, they were looking to Matthew 24 and the centuries that followed this as something still future. So they recognized something happened already. So like many biblical passages, like Ezekiel 36, the return from, from exile, from the Babylonian exiles, right? What happens there? Well, some of that passage is fulfilled, but the biggest parts of it still haven't been fulfilled. This is often the way prophecies are. There's an unfolding, there's a joining together, kind of a, a layered way of, of, of looking at things because they ask him, remember in verse three, when are these things gonna happen, meaning the destruction of the temple, and what's gonna be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And he tells us in Matthew 13, the end of the age is the final harvest. And then Matthew 28, 20, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, Dr. Mar, Dr. DeMar said, with you always, that means, you know, the future up until uh, the real end of the age. And, and even to the end of the age means destruction of the temple. Well, the problem is the word even isn't there in the Greek. And, and I, I failed to catch that. I wasn't looking at the Greek carefully as we were talking, and I just failed to remember that. That Jesus doesn't say, e it's not two separate things. I'm with you always to the end of the age. So was he telling the, the disciples, oh, I'm with you until the temple is destroyed? Obviously not. And then what does the Bible say about the trumpet? It's at the trumpet blast, the same words used, the parousia, his coming, are being gathered to him, 2 Thessalonians 1. And Paul says that won't happen until the Antichrist is revealed. And, and then Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth when he returns. And that's when at the trumpet blast we're caught up to meet him and the dead Messiah uh, resurrected, we meet him in the air and descend together. So absolutely cannot be speaking of everything that happened with the destruction of the temple. Much of Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13, Luke 21, remains for the future. Absolutely. No question about it. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Roy in Fort Mill, South Carolina. Thanks for calling the line of fire. All right, Roy's not there, but tell you what, I'm going to throw his question out and, and then get back to your calls. He was asking if we should do business with companies that are supporting abortions. First, let everyone act according to your own conscience before the Lord. All right, in, in many ways, it's almost impossible to live in this world today without doing businesses with companies that support some cause we differ with. Even just issues of gay activism. It's hard to use a cell phone, hard to get on a plane, hard to use a computer, hard to print some of your computer without supporting a company that in some way supports aspects of gay activism that we would strongly differ with as followers of Jesus. We, we want everyone to be treated fairly under the law. We want everyone to be treated with compassion and, and respect, all right? But we differ with many aspects of gay activism Almost every major company, in one way or another, actively supports causes that we would differ with. So what I've done is said, okay, I'm going to use my computer and use my printer and use my credit card for the glory of God. And to undermine the things that I believe these companies are doing wrong, I'm going to get out messages that speak the truth. However, when it comes to a company that is going over and above 
Like different companies are saying now they will pay for their employees to go to another state to get an abortion. As a matter of conscience, you might just say, I'm going to have to inconvenience myself and not use that company. In other words, if, if it's a matter of, of choice, if, if every grocery store in your community and every farmer in your community selling produce, every single one that you could get access to food from said we're supporting abortion actively, well, do you starve to death or do you eat the food and then work for pro-life? I, I would eat the food and work for pro-life. But where you have uh, choices that you can make, then according to your conscience before the Lord, make those choices. Not with the goal of putting a company out of business, but just saying in conscience before God, I have to draw this line in the sand. All right, straight back to your calls on the other side of the break. We'll be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire. You've got questions. We've got answers. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Joseph in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi there, Dr. Brown. Uh... I have a question about Daniel nine twenty six. Mm-hmm. Um, I basically I know that this passage basically says after sixty two weeks Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself and the and then I, I basically this sixty two weeks. Uh, some have speculated that um, that his ministry was actually one year instead of three, and they basically, and the, the the one source I'm quoting dominantly in this question is Michael Rood. He basically says that there was a passage added in John that indicated that there was another Passover in that Gospel. Um, so my question to you is, just based on what you know scholarly, is it really three years, and if so, what draws you to that, 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 uh, that, that uh, viewpoint? Uh, and is there any validity as far as the thought of his ministry being one year? Uh, no validity to it. Uh, Michael Rood is very unreliable as, as a source. He'll bring in very, very bizarre theories and claim to have exclusive insight into the ancient calendar. The one book of his that I reviewed many years ago was absolutely off the wall. So there may be some good stuff he's teaching as well, but the only things I've looked at carefully have been literally off the wall. So uh, sometimes someone will bring a point as if, oh, nobody knows this, or oh, all the scholars say this, but they get it wrong. When you hear that, almost always the person's off. Almost always they're bringing in something that other scholars are fully aware of and reject because there's no substance to it. And there's certainly no substance to back that in, in, uh, in Daniel 9.26 whatsoever. Uh, in fact, you could even argue that based on one interpretation of the 70th week, that it points to a three and a half year ministry of the Messiah. But basically, the, the sequence of accounts, the trips that are given from place to place, 
the development of the understanding of the disciples and the growing tension with the religious community, the visits to Jerusalem, etc. As scholars have analyzed these things over the years, they've recognized that John focuses on, for the most part, on the latter part of Jesus' ministry, and then a good chunk is is the last days of, of his ministry in John's gospel. But otherwise, just all of the cumulative evidence does suggest things unfolding over a period of, of a few years. You could argue for slightly less than three years or slightly over three years or things like that, but to reduce it all to one year, according to everything I understand, is untenable, even if, uh, just based on John 2, if there is an earlier cleansing of the temple and then a later cleansing of the temple, and then this is just part of the things that happened uh, during a certain season, over the, over the life of the ministry of Jesus, even that is setting it apart by, by a further year or more. So uh, I would just look at, at any standard New Testament survey or just get online and look for, for reliable sources that are more mainstream explaining why we come up with the chronology that we do. But let's just say this. If you're going to reduce it to a year, you've got to overcome a mountain of scholarship, and you're not going to do it by being fringe and coming up with all kinds of speculation, and you're the one to discover this or that. There's a reason that people reject these sources and speculation, because it is just that, speculation. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. That definitely clarifies uh, that particular uh, question that I had. Thank you for your time today. You are, you are very welcome, sir. 866-34-TRUTH. By the way, I'm, I'm all for questioning things. I'm all for re-examining. I've, I've done that for 50 years. I'm all for doing that. It's, it's just do it in a reliable way. Do it in a sound way. Do it in a way that's not like, oh, you see, the, there's a conspiracy. The church or biblical scholars, they, they're trying to keep this silent. And I alone have discovered it. Almost always, 99.999% of the time, bogus, bogus, bogus. Scholars are fully familiar with it and for good reason dismiss the argument. All right, let's go to uh, Isaac in El Salvador. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thanks for calling. Hey, thank you, Michael Brown. Thank you for getting my call. You uh, bet. I'm so grateful to the Lord for your ministry. I've gone over the first answering Jewish objections, and they are absolutely wonderful. Thank you. I oh, have glad to hear that. Yeah. Regarding the revelatory gift of the Holy Spirit, so to speak. Mm-hmm. The first one has to do with the identification of the gifts of tongues. You know, I can be described as a former open but cautious in that regard, but after reading, you know, Lee Trouble, Craig Keener, Sam Storms, you know, who can it be a sensationist, right? But at the same time, I have I have one question that I, I don't have it clear right now after reading Sam Storms, The Language of Heaven. Uh, one of my problems previously with the gifts of tongues is that uh, at the beginning of my conversion, I knew several people that were faking it. So right now I know it's real. I know that that's a, a gift of the Lord. But my question to you would be, uh, how can a person know that they uh, genuinely have the gift of tongues? Because First uh, Corinthians 14 says, says something like, the ones that speak in a strange tongue, nobody understands, them, right? Right. Uh, but through the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. Okay, but maybe uh, I can be self-delusional and mm-hmm. be 
talking something that is not uh, intelligible, uh, or maybe I'm being prompted by the Holy Spirit to speak or, or pray in a tongue. So, great uh, question. What would, yeah, yeah, great question. And 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 by the way. When people say, ah, the gibberish you're speaking today, it's not tongues. That's what Paul said to an outsider. It's going to sound yeah. like gibberish. They're just going to think you're going to blah, 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 or literally bar, bar. You're barbarian. So, Isaac, let me ask you a question. How do you know that you know that you're born again? How do you know that's real? Well, in that regard, I would say that I have a direct knowledge and intuition, very, very strong from the Holy Spirit. And in my change of life, right, my, my behavior, my mentality, and all the incredible things that I experienced with uh, the born again. Got it. All right, so you took God at his word, and he came into your life and changed you, and you know that you know yeah. that you know that it's real. Okay, so it's a similar thing to speaking in tongues, that you ask God, Lord, I ask for the fullness of your Holy Spirit that you can be glorified in me. I, I ask you to work through me in the maximum way that you can to bring glory to yourself and to strengthen me to do your will. And as you feel the Holy Spirit moving on you and you feel prompted, as you're praising, worshiping, praying, you feel prompted to begin to speak a new language, as you do it, you'll experience over a period of time or instantly supernatural edification. You'll experience upbuilding. The Holy Spirit will move in your life. It, your prayer life will be deepened. You'll begin to get insight as you pray how to pray for certain things. So you, you, and then remember, Jesus says that if, that if what father is there, what man is there of you? If his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone, right? In Matthew 7, Luke 11. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake instead. So if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask? So as I'm asking the Lord, not just for an experience, not for a feeling, right? But for the fullness of his spirit at work in my life so I can best glorify him. I'm not going to receive a demon as I do that, right? He's not going to send me deception. So as I'm walking with him, worshiping him, and I just begin to pray in a new language, I remember being at a prayer meeting January 24th of 72, and I just felt, I feel like I'm, I'm just I'm supposed to say, and, and some words came to my mouth. I was like, you could make that up. I could go, la, 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 blah, 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 right? You could make things up. But then it happened a little bit more, and then as I prayed, more came out, and then I realized, this is just flowing. This is just flowing. And the more I prayed like that, the more built up I got, the more effective I was when I went to minister to people. In fact, that was the number one thing I realized. Wow, when I really pray more in tongues, I, I feel more effective as I go to minister to others. And then I, I would feel a deepening in, in my fellowship with God. And then a deepening in, in, in how to pray. I feel, I pray in tongues for an extended period of time. And the next thing I'm, I'm, I'm weeping with a burden and, and, or praying for a very specific situation. So you have the promise of the word and then God will back the experience in your, in, your, in your life in a way that is edifying and upbuilding, and you'll see it bear fruit over a period of time. That's how you know it's real. And, and um, it, it's that simple to me. It's the same relationship you have with God and everything else just working its way out in this specific instance. And you'll see, you'll know. You have a solid relationship with the Lord. You told me he's radically changed your life. It'll be evident that it's the Lord at work in your life. All right? Okay. Awesome. Thank you for that. You are uh, very, my, very my welcome. Symptoms, 
my, my second question, Dr. Brown, is in regards to uh, cessationism. Yeah. Uh, I have never been a cessationist. I, I found that very, very hard to believe, but I, I was maybe open but conscious. And then I'm, I'm convinced of the third way option, maybe uh, around the lines of John Wimber and, and some terms. Uh, and last time you had a program in which you will you were inviting people to give the best arguments, uh, scriptural arguments. Remember about yeah, yeah, uh, about cessation. And I was dismayed that nobody <laughs> uh, came with with a good argument. I I just have one doubt. Maybe the the last refuge that a cessationist can go, and 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 I wanted to know the your input on it. Maybe the cessationist can claim that you know there's no one. Uh, there's not a, a specific verse that came back up the sensation I claim, but we have done it through deductive argument uh, for some evidence that we have. For instance, they can claim that, you know, God never gave any warning. Uh, hey, sons of Israel, uh, beginning from Malachi, uh, there will be 400 years without profit. Uh, you, you don't have a... a be John Dow, uh, indubitable warning. You know, Taylor, let, let, me, let me just jump in, only because I've got a break coming up. Here's the difference as far as God not giving a warning. The New Testament explicitly says these things will continue until Jesus returns, that we will have them until we see the Lord face to face. And it explicitly tells us to pursue prophecy and not to forbid tongues. And it, it tells us that we are to pray for the sick and expect to see healing. So it gives us a mandate, a commission to pursue these things. And in addition to that, it makes clear these will continue until he returns. The outpouring with prophecy, according to Acts 2, is for the last days until the end of the harvest. So that would be a very big difference right there. Thanks, sir. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much for joining us, 866-34-TRUTH. By the way, the fact that no one called with a substantial argument of any kind for cessationism in, in our cessationist call-in day does not prove that no one has an argument it simply proves no one called in that day. Now, in my view, there is no biblical argument for cessationism, with all respect to my cessationist friends. If you're going to give an argument, you do it based on experience rather than the Bible, in my humble opinion. And even then, we have answers and responses based on the Bible. But I'm not saying that no one... Look, there may be learned scholars that say, I'm not going to call in radio show, or plenty of people didn't know the show was, was happening. But... In my view, even the best of scholars and theologians cannot bring a biblically-based argument for cessationism. And I remain very, very happy to debate those qualified scholars and theologians that would like to have a formal debate for the glory of God and the edifying of the body. All right, let's go to Stephen in Minnesota. Thanks for holding. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello? Are you there? Hello? Yeah. I am. Okay, go ahead. Need to turn down your radio. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, so, 
similar question, really, uh, looking at the gifts of the Spirit, and particularly speaking in tongues, I'm going to try to narrow it to something you didn't answer as much. But uh, so got a couple of friends. We're on the way to a prayer room, and both of them are very recently uh, opening up to the things of the Spirit and that kind of thing. And so one point is that uh, they want to be careful. So how do you be careful about seeking the gifts of the Spirit, seeking tongues, uh, and really how do you know uh, if you don't have an experience, if you don't have, uh, like you mentioned, that language coming up, how do you know whether or not you're speaking in tongues or how do you really seek that? Right. So, again, the, it's a great question, Stephen, and it's one that someone easily could have had in the first century, right? In, in other words, there was no test. In Acts 2, the believers spoke new languages. They'd never spoken them before. People heard the praises of God in their own language. But when Paul is talking about it in 1 Corinthians 14, it's something very different. He said, no one understands you. You're speaking mysteries in your spirit to God, which is a beautiful and wonderful thing. You're edifying yourself, which is healthy, because this way, and, and uh, Jude 20 tells us to build ourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the spirit. So it's good to edify ourselves because now we can better serve and help others. But when Paul says that he speaks of a gift of the spirit to interpret, and unless someone has a gift, then you shouldn't speak in tongues, deliver a message in a, in a public meeting because no one understands. So it could have been the same question then in, first, in the days of First Corinthians, like how do we know it's real, right? Because there's no dictionary for tongues. There, there's, there's no, okay, here's the test. All right, let's, it sounds like this. There are this many syllables. No. So how would one know? Like anything else, Stephen, how do you know you're making a right decision on your job? How do you know you're making a right decision with your spouse for the future? How do you know you're, you're making a right decision to, to go to seminary or to, to go in the mission field? You seek the Lord earnestly, right? You use the wisdom that you have. And then you trust that as you're doing the right thing, he bears witness with the spirit. And if something's wrong, then, then it, it, there'll be that lack of witness. So one thing is, as you pray in tongues on a regular basis over a period of time, you will have a growing witness of the spirit. I discovered that. No one taught that to me, but as I would pray in tongues alone, five minutes and 10 and 15 and 20, then a half an hour, I, I was getting built up in my inner being and then my mind was starting to become more aware of, of, of spiritual realities, biblical truths were opening up to me, etc. Now, now here's the other thing. If you're making up words, right, you're aware of that. For example, if you're making up words and now you start reading a book, look at that book and read the book, or in your mind start counting from one to a hundred, you're not gonna be able to make up words without getting distracted. I can pray in tongues and count in my mind to an hour. I could pray in tongues and, and be reading the Bible at the same time because it's coming from another part of my mind and my being. In fact, I remember early on in the Lord at the house of uh, some friends, pastor's house actually hanging out with his family, and I wanted to just get alone and pray for an hour uh, while they were doing some other things. So I went to one room upstairs and counted 60 times uh, in my mind to a minute as a drummer, I can keep a beat while concentrating in prayer in tongues. So it was coming from, a, that's what I realized, well, this is coming from a different part of my mind. So there are even ways to test it like that. 
But most importantly, over a period of time, you'll find edification, growth, strength. It'll, it'll really be undeniable. And, and that will be the Holy Spirit bearing witness with your spirit that this is real. All right? All right, well, thank you for the call and the question. I'm sure many others have wondered about the same thing. Uh, let us go to Sharon in Connecticut. Thanks for holding, and welcome to the line of fire. Hi, thanks for taking my call. You bet. Um, going through the prophets in the Old Covenant, Israel was warned for years and years that they would be destroyed if they did not turn back to the Lord and repent, right? Mm-hmm. Well, other than in Deuteronomy 28, was there any specific prophetic warnings to the Jews about the Holocaust in Scripture? All right, so obviously it's, it's a sensitive issue to talk about because of the depth of suffering involved. And we're not attributing this to a specific sin. Well, the Jews rejected Jesus, that's why the Holocaust happened. You know, to make statements like that is, is so callous and so ignorant and so wrong just on the surface. Also, it, 1900 years later, then that's when this punishment comes, etc. cetera. Uh, so we have to be very sensitive, as, as I'm sure you are, when you ask the question. Deuteronomy 28 is a general prophecy about blessings and curses. In other words, I don't see it as a specific prophecy of a Holocaust as much as horrific suffering of all different right. kinds for our people. So if, if you take a passage like Jeremiah 30, Jacob's trouble, right? Without question, initially, it's talking about punishment on that generation in Judah and, and the Judean kingdom, the southern kingdom, at the hands of the Babylonians. That's clearly the first reference. However, as I studied this carefully from my Jeremiah commentary, it seems to be a template and a prophecy of future suffering. In other words, Jacob's trouble has recurred over the centuries. It recurred with the destruction of the first temple, uh, excuse me, with destruction of the second temple and the following Bar Kokhba war and some of the exiles and, and some of the massacres that have taken place and the Holocaust. So I, I believe in that sense, there are some prophecies of coming destruction that have replayed over the centuries. But aside from, aside from that, Sharon, I can't think of something that I would specifically say, ah, this directly foreshadowed the Holocaust. Nothing like that as much as a pattern that tragically repeated itself. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Uh, I've just been thinking about this as I'm reading the, pro- you know, the stuff in the Old Testament, and it's like, I mean, that was horrific what happened in the 40s or the 30s. And was there any warning at all for these people to flee or get out of Germany or get out of right. this country? So that's, that's a separate thing. And yes, there were voices in the Jewish community warning people to flee. Now, were the voices known? How loudly were the mm-hmm. voices heard? Could they have been right. sounded even more loudly? That's all debatable. But for sure, for sure, there were voices that were warning, get out destruction's coming and it wasn't necessarily by religious people as much as people who saw the handwriting on the wall and then interestingly when things started happening in germany because so many of german jews were very secular we're not living as traditional jews and the laws were being passed against jewish people there were traditional rabbis who said this is a punishment for our sins because we have ceased to observe the sabbath we have ceased to honor god as a torah community 
And therefore, these things are happening to us as judgment. So some are even thinking in that way initially before the thing unfolded in, it, in its full horror. Um, was it Jabotinsky? Oh, I don't want to say this wrongly, but you can check. Was Vladimir Jabotinsky one of the voices that was warning to, to flee while there was still time? There certainly were some. But again, in retrospect, were they heard throughout the Jewish world at that time? Were they as loud as they could have been? That's all debatable in hindsight. By the way, some have looked at Zechariah 13. It speaks of two-thirds of the land will be, will be cut off. Some have said, well, that's, that's what happened with the first and second Jewish revolts in, in the, the first and second century of this era. That's what ultimately happened then. Others say, no, 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 that's a future thing that's going to happen in the land of Israel and, and destruction coming on Jewish people. Uh, I don't subscribe to that view personally, but some hold to that. And then others say, well, no, it's two out of every three Jews in Europe were killed, except that's not something that happened in the land. So uh, with that, uh, I, I wouldn't see that as a direct prophecy. Hey, so sorry I could not get to more of your calls today. Everyone a hold, I, I I do look at your names, and when you call another time, we try to get to you ahead. Remember Monday, we're not going to be live on radio, so we'll have a best of show on radio, but we'll be live online. So join us on YouTube or Facebook. That's ASKDR Brown on YouTube and Facebook. And we plan to have an, an hour commercial free answering a lot of your questions that you'll post and interacting. So maybe if we couldn't get you today by phone, you can post your questions on Monday, and we'll get to a whole lot more. Be blessed. Have a great weekend. Another program powered by the Truth Network.